Now, let us have our first question. Ajahn, our first question is from Rob B. in Portsmouth, United Kingdom. What would you advise for getting the right balance between serenity practices like breath meditation and metta practice? For example, would you generally look to drop the metta at a certain point and take up breath meditation to move towards the jhanas? Breath meditation and loving-kindness work very, very well together. And in the last two talks, talk 9 and 10, which will appear when? Tomorrow and the next day, I will be going through a sutta called The Eleven Benefits of Loving-Kindness. And in that sutta, uh, something is mentioned that when you practice loving-kindness very deeply and regularly and become competent in it, one of its benefits is that the mind is easily calmed. So quite often, the attempt to follow the breath is a very difficult subject for a lot of people. And I would say for them that if you're not having success in staying with, it's a very, very subtle object to, to stay just fully cognizant of your breath for extended periods of time is a tremendous demand on your uh, attention span. It's a very low sensory experience, and it's deliberately a low sensory experience. The Buddha is giving you something that is neither repulsive nor attractive. And he's saying, you know, if you can get your mind to the, to the intensity and sensitivity where it's content and, in fact, full of uh, enjoyment at merely staying with the process of breathing, then the world is your oyster. You can uh, dwell in simplicity and yet be without boredom, restlessness, etc. So it's a wonderful thing, and it is the gateway to the uh, to the jhanas as well. But loving kindness may be a better subject to start with and to practice for perhaps months or even years if you're having. Uh, trouble accessing breath meditation, and most people do. If anybody says it's easy, it's not. Uh, quite often, people don't even aren't even aware how much vacation time they have when they're trying to do breath meditation. If I could have some sort of computer um, that would register exactly how much they spent their time there, they might be surprised at how far, uh, how how many percent of what percent of, of time that they actually were with the breath and what percent they were on vacation somewhere. This is kind of like uh, keeping track of how much sleep you had. People report, oh, I didn't sleep a wink, but then they go to a sleep lab and then it turns out they actually slept three hours. But uh, so this is uh, a very, very demanding subject and an excellent way to come to it is just to immerse yourself in loving-kindness, because it can be done uh, in all kinds of postures and uh, built up over time, and it will give you the preliminaries. And it's much more available and interesting and rich than attempting to watch the breath. Um, and so the, it works very well with that. If you can manage to do breath meditation and 
attain any kind of uh, level of samadhi or immersion in uh, concentration. It's a very joyful experience, and basically you have suspended, in order to get into samadhi, into, into concentration, you have suspended the five hindrances. And what are the enemies of loving-kindness? Basically the five hindrances, especially ill will. So they both function as ways of uh, diminishing or suspending, suppressing the five hindrances. And when that happens, that is called a state of, of true well-being. You're in a state of real well-being. What floods your mind is, is joy and uh, your body is at least pain-free and perhaps full of pleasant feelings. When you're over your illness, the illness of ordinary life, the ordinary kind of uh, dullness and mild irritability that people walk through their entire life with, and, and in fact, right into their dreams with, you feel you, you have recovered from an illness that you didn't even know you had. And that makes you very, very sympathetic to other beings. When you get over the illness, then uh, you realize that people are walking around in a, in a very difficult, painful kind of condition. So loving kindness or, and breath meditation both make you more empathic. So if you manage to get some relief through breath meditation, you'll have a lot more understanding of the psychological and emotional issues that, that people have because they're walking around trapped in a whole bunch of misunderstandings, a labyrinth of misunderstandings, a maze of misinformation that they they can't get out of unless they, they get good instruction and are uh, supported by uh, people encouraging them to change how they think and feel. So these these two things uh, go together very well, and both, both uh, breath meditation and uh, loving-kindness can help you attain the jhanas. Now, here I go. Ajahn Sona's channel, six talks on jhana. Everything you want to know about jhana. And and you and one thing you should know is that it's a supernormal attainment. It's uh it's not what ordinary people experience in life. And so uh hold it in high esteem, expect uh it to be an extraordinary experience, and but it is possible to attain for some people. But it, you really have to put a, a, aside a lot of hobbies <laughs> if you want to cultivate these supernormal uh, depths of, of steadiness and concentration, which gives joy uh, to your mind, joy to your mind, and ease to your body. Our next question is from Anonymous in the United States. Ajahn, the story of Angulimala has come up a couple of times during the retreat, and you've encouraged us not to ruminate on or painfully regret past bad actions. Instead, you've told us to consider our past selves, quote, characters in a story. I find this idea incredibly freeing. However, I'm wondering how Kama relates to this, does this mean we carry our kama based on the mental formations, emotions we allow? How could a man who killed a thousand people reach nibbana in the same lifetime? 
If every cause must have an effect, what releases one from the cycle of negative thoughts, actions, and their corresponding results? Thank you so much. Right. So Angulimala, uh, his original name was uh, was harmless, <laughs> ahimsa. <laughs> and suddenly he became very himsa. He became very harmful. And it was it was due to a... There's a long story behind it. He was misinformed. It's kind of like... Um, a child soldier. This happens in life, doesn't it? Uh, children who are quite innocent, drafted, taken by rogues, and pulled into a an army, and and yeah, you know, how much is it their responsibility? They end up killing people. They're thirteen years old, and then, and we we understand actually in modern times that these these kids might spend three or four years with this brutality. And then what should we do with them? And is there any hope for them whatsoever? If you pull them out of there, uh, what are you going to do? You just execute them or put them in prison for the rest of their life? Or at that age, see, uh, they can make tremendous transformations. They, they come out of that and uh, we don't really blame them. They were taken and forced to do these things. But it doesn't, it doesn't uh, eliminate the fact that they did uh, participate in murder. And uh, they were under the spell of other ignorant, brutal people. And their, those intentional actions uh, are not sort of erased from the universe. There will be consequences for that. But it is possible they can get over the emotional trauma and legacy of having participated in these things. And some of them can end up being very, uh, in very good mental health, uh, depending on whether they get the right advice and the right direction, and that they're told that this was under duress and you were forced to do it and you should forget it, you should not be remorseful about it. You should not be guilty about it. You will never get out of the hole that you are thrown into um, through these actions if you dwell on them in guilt and remorse. And it is possible not to. So what would be the point of making a 13-year-old admit every day of their life, for the rest of their life, that they, they're sorry they killed somebody and when they were dragged? forced to by some, some dictator. Now, we should say, look, you know, you can be free of this, and, uh, and you should be free of this. And in the case of Angulimala, you know, he fell in with the Buddha himself, so the Buddha very forcefully and clearly told him, abandon those thoughts and then he explained Dhamma to him, and, uh, and Gulimala had a realization about things, and he was no longer ignorant. Now, the consequences of his actions uh, were, the, the karma actually played out in a very min, minute way, a very minuscule kind of way. He, when he went on alms round in the villages, sometimes boys would recognize him as this serial murderer and throw rocks at him. And occasionally he came back 
from alms round, you know, he was fully enlightened. He came back from alms round with a, a, a few cuts on his head from having been hit by stones. And this was the, all of the consequences that were, that played out in this life. And because he's uh, fully enlightened, there will be no future lives for it to play out. So this function of karma, cause and effect, is fairly relentless. It's not absolute. By the way, it's a very complex... Um, this, this thought is sometimes in the West thought, this, this idea of karma is thought as a kind of a naive idea, but once you, re once you read some of the sophisticated explanations of this, you will see that it's very close to modern physics in, in how cause and effects work, cause and effect works in the physical universe. This is cause and effect in the moral dimension. But there are situations, for instance, uh, where, uh, you know, in, in planetary orbits or asteroid orbits, if the, the body goes far enough from the gravitational attraction, it can go right out of orbit and there is no, and it proceeds through space and is no longer under the influence of gravitational pull from that body. So it goes, it's not pulled into the orbit, it's, it's released from the orbit. And this is kind of what happens with the enlightenment that uh, the remaining negative karma, which has accumulated over lifetimes, is no longer uh, functioning. And the arahant uh, disappears, uh, not to be seen again, and not to be comprehended in an ordinary way. But others, uh, even if you become a very loving and pure person, you may have some karma from past lives that plays out in this life. And we've seen many beautiful people uh, murdered and kill, uh, murdered and tortured and have all kinds of misfortunes happen to them that have nothing to do with anything they've done in this life. So this is, the supposition is that this, some negative action has occurred in the past. They are no longer the person that committed the act. The act travels along in time and has a resultant. And it's not to do with their present condition of morality. It's to do with a, an action in the past. And this can happen. Um, as a child, even, you, can, you, uh, you fall down the stairs or you do something stupid put your finger in a, an electric socket or, and you get a scar and a burn. And that scar will go with you right till you die. And you are no longer a child. You wouldn't now put your finger in a socket. You wouldn't, um, you know, fall down the stairs anymore. You, you're, you're not the person who, who did that and who has a resultant. And it, it may be a permanent injury of some sort. You may um, knock out your teeth or all, all kinds of things that you do at a certain stage in life, and the consequences keep following you. Uh, but you're no longer that person. So there's two aspects. Are you the same in, uh, personality? Uh, do you have the same... Uh, are you under the same influence of ignorance is one aspect. And then what about the bodily consequences? So you also may have fallen in with some sort of uh, chemicals that 
uh, only 30 years later result in cancer. And the, the reason why you were involved in these chemicals is out of ignorance or out of malice or something, but it's, it's suspended and it's playing out in time. And, and the, causes, the, the causes eventually have fruition, they, they have results. But you are not the person who did the, did the crime. <laughs> so that's the way it works. Uh, we're not interested in, Buddhism doesn't ask if it's fair or why would God do this? It, we don't, we're not interested in that. The Buddha, in general, does not approve of the way the, or, the universe is organized. Uh, he advises you to get out as soon as you can because there's too much uh, tragic possibility in it. Uh, and so it's not that we approve or disapprove of it. It's like approving of gravity or disapproving of gravity. You know, a child falls off a building and gravity is merciless, right? They don't care that they're three years old. Gra gravity uh, just works. It's a law of the universe. We don't blame anybody for gravity. We don't blame gravity for gravity. We don't approve of gravity. We don't disapprove of gravity, but that's the way it works. And so this, is, this karma thing is, a, is very fascinating. One of these days I must do about three hours of talks on just on karma because one of the, an area that's, that people, even Buddhists, practice, practicing Buddhists, do not understand how sophisticated and how close to the laws of physics this, this process really is. So uh, thanks for the question and I will uh, get around one of these days to making extensive uh, talks on Kama and its resultant. By the way, we have this word, it's come into the English language, karma. Oh, it's your karma. That, it's not your karma, actually. When something happens to you, it's, it's your vipaka. The karma is the intentional action. Vipaka is the result, the fruition of that action. So when some, you know, you, something comes to you, it's, it's vipaka is the word. And we, we say, it's your karma, but the, it's not your karma, it's, your, it's the results of previous karma. But if you go around saying, oh man, it's your vipaka, nobody will understand what the hell you're talking about, so forget that. <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> next question is from Sumana in White Court, Canada. Dear Ajahn, thank you for your wisdom and kindness from which I have so often benefited. I am pondering the being versus doing question further, the inward and outward dimensions of developing metta. My heart is more settled when I, quote, retreat from the world into dhamma, dhamma work, poetry, and books. Yet each time I do this, opportunities, sometimes urgent, arise to contribute actively in the community where I live, lately in a way that touches my family closely. Advice is welcome on how to skillfully navigate this, untangling my motivations and the best way forward. Yeah, that is, that is the nature of the household life sometimes. And everybody has their karmic situation. Uh, and sometimes it's a karmic dilemma. You have obligations to your children and your spouse and uh, your parents and your friends and your your co-workers and all of these things. And sometimes uh, if they're experiencing some 
some complexities in their life, then you're dragged into this. And this is uh, one of the reasons why monastics, uh, the monastic institution exists, is to try to simplify this. But even in monasteries, of course, uh, sometimes things happen. Monasteries get dragged into <laughs> wars and things like this. Uh, you can imagine what it'd be like to be in a, a monk in Tibet when the Chinese invaded, or being a monk in China when the when the Chinese communists decided that they should get rid of all of the Buddhist monasteries, or Vietnam, or Korea, or etc. etc. So it's not like we can tell the world not to bother us because we're monks and nuns, uh, but you probably have a better chance of having a, a, a low distraction kind of environment in a monastery. And, uh, but some people have a very ideal kind of uh, lay life as well, where they not, it doesn't intrude on them. Uh, other uh, complex family relationships don't intrude on them. And so uh, one should uh, realize that sometimes it goes smoothly and sometimes it, um, it kind of overtakes you. We try to, when, when we have demands like that, we try to switch modes from, we try not to resent that the world has intruded on us. We should actually, every morning when we wake up, we should do a little bit of surprise meditation and say, now, what is it that I would be surprised at at this stage in my life? You know, you read the newspaper and you think, oh, somebody killed somebody and this happened and that happened. Yeah, after about, when you're about 16 years old, you should actually not be surprised by anything. You know, there was the Second World War. There was, there was every kind of craziness in human history. You should no longer be surprised by what humans are capable of, what nature is capable of, what animals are capable of. There is no surprise now. So what you got to do is take the surprise away and say, look, when this kind of chaos comes my way, I'm certainly not resentful or surprised. I know this kind of stuff happens. And I have to respond without resentment and appropriately. And sometimes it requires patience and compassion. Sometimes it involves wisdom. Sometimes just loving kindness. And sometimes, uh, you know, it, it, it allows you great lengths of, and of time for real peace. And uh, that, so that's how you should adapt your practice, is to take everything as a, as a challenge to not being surprised. People in ordinary life reinforce this with, in ordinary conversations. You know, how could that happen? And what are they thinking? And... Why do people do that? And <laughs> they should know better. That's that's one of the famous. Ones. Never say they should know better. You should know better than to think they should know better. Okay. Even if you've told them a hundred times, you should know better than to think they should know better. <laughs> they don't know better. Okay. So that's a little ways to take the winds out of the sails of of being surprised. <laughs> Our next question is from Steve B. from Friday Harbor, United States. Dear Ajahn, once we can sustainably generate milk squirts of metta, 
how do we expand the feeling, sensation, intention from there into longer lengths of experience? How do we, from this starting point, dwell continuously in metta for 5, 10, 20 minutes and beyond? Thank you for your online teachings. They have been so helpful for me over the years. Yeah, so our first job is to get a little squirt of it. And, um, but we shouldn't be satisfied with 5, 10, or 20 minutes of it. There are reports of people living in it 24 hours a day for most of the rest of their life, and what a great way to live. So um, it's kind of like, you know, use all your money to, to rent a, a really uh, high-end hotel room for an hour a day. But wouldn't you rather have access to a mansion continuously, so you should be highly motivated. So the first thing is, get a little taste of this so that you're highly motivated to experience loving kindness. Your your problems are basically over, you know. You, you, uh, fear is eliminated, anxiety is eliminated, resentment is eliminated, the past, the burdens of the past are eliminated. Uh, and I will get on to some of the other benefits of it in, in the last two talks, and and three of them are one sleeps well, one wakes well, one has no bad dreams. So this loving kindness pervades every aspect of your life. It allows you to rest, allows you to feel unthreatened. Uh, it, uh, it changes the dimensions of your thoughts even as you approach death. It gives you reduction of pain in the body. All these things, amazing things. So you should be, the more you... The, the more you taste it, the, the more you want to taste it. So it's something that you, you should um, look forward to and use every resource you can in an ingenious way to extend the, the experience of this. So, uh, you know, ask for, for much more than a few minutes of it and understand that, that this is uh, an incredible kind of investment in, in a positive future. So the Buddha is very clear about this. We were talking about karma earlier, that the, the result, the karmic resultant, the vipaka of loving kindness is, is staggering. The, the transition of consciousness and, and also the physical repercussions of generating loving kindness. There's all kinds of abundance in, in all kinds of physical dimensions that, that come to one who generates loving kindness. Uh, so all of these things should play through your mind. And uh, it's not something selfish either that if you can find this and find the positive results in it, you can also you have a chance of at least communicating it to others and they can benefit by this. So that's about all I can say except for the next three talks, which I will continue to... Well, there'll be four. I think there's one tonight and then three more. So... Go over those 10 talks again and again and go, you know, be pulled in by the voice of another. Create your own, your own means to, to do this. This, by the way, is how a lot of skills are developed. Uh, when I was, a, I was a musician, and one of the ways that you, you learned, I was a classical musician and, and also a jazz musician, so you, you have to pay fairly long passages that are very fast. And uh, you can't do it at first. What do you do? Well, you do what's called bursts. So you do four or five notes quickly. So then once you do these little bursts, then you try to put two of them together. 
And then eventually you can get where you can play long sweeping passages. But it starts with a few quick movements and then you put them together and then eventually you can do a sustained uh, uh, movement. And so this is the same with uh, loving kindness. Loving kindness is a craft and an art, just like music is, like many things are, a craft and an art. Ajahn, our next question is from Mark S. in Falkland, Canada. Venerable Lung Persona, I would like to humbly ask you, in the spirit of cranking things up to 11, is it possible to take a meta speedboat all the way to Sotapati? Well, uh, Sotapati is uh, the first stage of enlightenment, stream entry. Uh, but that, that moment of stream entry can be set up by, by loving kindness. It can uh, allow the mind to have a realization. But the realization is always on one of three things. It's of, of anicca, dukkha, anatta. You, the, the clear breakthrough insight into the impermanence of all things, the unsatisfactory nature of this samsaric reality, and then the emptiness of the, the non-existence of self, of the core identity. Uh, so one of those things is seen through. Uh, and by the way, <clears throat> most in most cases, it's a Nietzsche. Uh, and in the, the next level, it's dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness. And the least, the most difficult, is anatta, non-self. The three of those are connected, but the easiest one to, to reflect on is anicca. When you're established in loving-kindness, the hindrances are suppressed. They, they're not active. They're there in the background, they're latent, but they're not active. And so you've set yourself up to have a lucid insight into this, this basic truth of life. So, you know, it's kind of like, think about, <clears throat> you know, you're, you, you say you go, you find some friends and you, you've been working hard and embroiled in all kinds of crazy family stuff and politics and stuff. And you say, I gotta, I'm going on a holiday, so some friends to invite you into the mountains and they have a beautiful, they're beautiful people and you have a beautiful place to go and stay and, uh, you know, you're having a lovely time and all of that kind of drama is left behind and uh, you're out there enjoying nature, watching the squirrels and the deer and all this kind of stuff and your days go by, days go by and you're sitting by a beautiful river watching it and, you know, hell, all of the harassments have have gone, you forget all of the problems, and you're just, and it's at that time that suddenly a, a realizations happen in those kind of moments. You think, why do I live that tangled life? Why would I want to go back to that tangled life? I know I can make a change, you know. I, I think I'll start in this direction. I think I'll maybe quit my job and go this direction. I, that's the kind of, the setup is this beautiful quality of serenity when you have clarity. And then your, your mind, without asking it, pops up a solution to a situation. You see. 
This happens in scientific discoveries as well. You mean the famous Newton sitting under the apple tree. Apparently the apple didn't drop on his head, but um, the, he's, he's in a peaceful condition and he starts to think about gravity. He said, why do apples fall on the ground? So all kinds of scientific breakthroughs are preceded by similar things where somebody's been working on various problems and they finally give up and they go to sleep and then they dream the solution, etc. So this is the, why the function of loving kindness is to, is to wipe out the impediments and harassments that keep you from having lucid, clear uh, vision of reality. So this is the, its relationship. Our next question is from Shreema W. in Calgary, Canada. Due to some health problems, our pet dog, Takiri, was taken to the vet hospital. The vet says that the tests show she has cancer, but it is not all that bad. The advice was to put her to sleep so she will be free of pain. People have, who have pets have told us such things, but this is all new to our culture and our Buddhist upbringing. We have had puppies in our homes and never have they been, quote, put to sleep. Fortunately, they all died from natural causes. We understand she has to go someday but cannot bear the idea of murder. So we did not want her in a hospital. She was brought home. She is fine, happy, and playful, and just being bathed with our love, care, and attention and wise advice from a Kalyanamita while being on medication. I think the power of loving kindness is doing wonders more than the medicine, and we hope and wish for her a peaceful end when it is time to go. Is it lack of loving kindness or an abundance of loving kindness on the part of the vet that makes him give such advice in such a cool manner? I think it's ignorance on the part of the vet that makes them give such advice in such a cool manner. And what, why do, why does this, many of you who are watching don't understand that uh, the idea of so-called uh, putting a dog out of its suffering or putting an animal out of its suffering or uh, what do you call it? Putting it to sleep, yeah. Why, why is it that this culture does that and other cultures don't do that? Some, some other cultures do, some other cultures don't. Um, and uh, the Buddhist approach to this is not to. Like there isn't, the idea of euthanasia is not, an, 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 and by the way, this euthanasia is a good death, meaning you, EU is, is good. Tanatos, good death. Uh, well, maybe it's a matter of opinion. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know whether I want somebody to uh, decide that I'm going to have a good death. <laughs> the, the whole idea is, is, needs to be examined. Uh, first of all, they use this euphemism. There we get the U again. Euphemism, good word for a bad thing. <laughs> The dog's not going to sleep. <laughs> the dog, you're... For, and why, why is it this culture? But um, it's because of Christianity. <laughs> In Christianity, animals don't have souls. And humans do. And by the way, it was, it was only decided at the Council of Nicaea, I think, they debated whether women had a soul. You're lucky because otherwise we'd be putting you to sleep as well. You know, so they, this count, this bunch of men decided they had to debate whether women had a soul to begin with, and they certainly said no. Animals don't have souls; they're kind of machines. 
Um, and so the idea that the animal is not has no uh, sort of spiritual element to it is why the vet, who, who may not be a Christian at all, we inherit these things from Christianity. We don't, we don't examine why do we think this? Why do we put a, why do we just, as soon as you get sick, they put the dog to sleep, but you don't, your mother gets sick, you don't put your mother to sleep, do you? Why? Well, actually, we're getting close to the edge where now we're going to put mom to sleep as well, you know, like everybody's going to go to sleep. Um, so why is this happening? It's legacy beliefs from religious ideas. And so we should re-examine this. And from a Buddhist point of view, you, you don't kill. It, because death is not the problem. Killing is the problem. Everybody's got to die. And everybody's going to have pain and this and that, and then it's going to be over. But don't you kill, because you're forming this intention to kill. And that's the, you're generating a negative resultant from that. So this is important. And then you may have some guilt later on, you know, from this. This is, this happened, you can see the brutality of, uh, the common uh, practice of execution in certain societies, right? Common practice of execution. It, the, the last child was hung in, uh, in Britain in, in a public square uh, in the 1870s, some like eight-year-old, for stealing a loaf of bread. Now, how would you, what do you, what do you think that was done in Canada today? How would you think? The last child was sentenced to death in Canada in the late 50s. And the sentence, was, it was only 14. And it was sentenced to be hung by the neck until dead. Stand up in the court, 14-year-old boy. You're going to be hung by the neck. And in the meantime, you're going to be held in this maximum security cell. And uh, then, for some reason, they decided not to. That man is still alive, and it turns out he was innocent. <laughs> There's the death penalty for humans in Canada ended in 1968. It's still going on in the States and other countries, but many countries don't, they don't execute people anymore. Well, how do you feel about that? Well, what, why did we used to execute everybody? Think, oh, you, you, you have to do this. <laughs> and then, no, we don't. So this is something, you have a pro process. Let me just examine a few of the thoughts here. The idea that the dog is going to be put out of its suffering. So you have an assumption that death ends suffering. Are you sure about that? That death ends suffering? It may, it may end suffering for the, the observer, like the person who doesn't, is suffering because the dog is in pain. <clears throat> and somehow that, that is actually the motive. It's not the dog that you want to put out. You're uncomfortable with the fact that the dog is in, in distress. And when you kill the dog, it's not in distress. And you no longer feel distress. But does the dog 
not feel depressed. How can he not feel depressed? He's dead. He's dead. And you think he's a machine that has been terminated. And so he doesn't get relief from his suffering. If death is non-existence, how is he supposed to feel relieved? <laughs> he doesn't exist. He can't feel happy and he can't feel bad. He can't feel... There is nobody there to feel anything. So all the dog knows is pain, but he doesn't know the end of pain. If you presume that death is termination. Buddhists do not presume that. Death is a transition. The dog's going on to a different life. In that next life, is he, is he free from all pain and distress? Who knows? The, the fact that you killed him doesn't necessarily mean that he's, his, all his pain and distress is now terminated and he has a nice life now where he doesn't have any pain. You don't know that. And in the case of humans as well, people have this, they, they, they also believe that dying is, is how you end suffering. So this is why we put people to, you know, we, we also practice euthanasia. So we, we're going to put them out of their distress. As, and we have this strange, where do we get the belief that death ends suffering? All of the religions, or most of the religions teach death does not end suffering. It's a radical transition, that's all. So we are profoundly confused about all this stuff. So I would say that, the, 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 first of all, the dog and the cat are not thinking, oh, I hope I don't die. They're, they don't they don't, they're not reflective standing outside of themselves worrying about death. They do have pain, but they don't even think to themselves, I wish I was not in pain. The dog and the cat are simply in pain. They don't think, I wish I was like when I was a puppy, that's a, that's a human thinking. I'm afraid to die, etc. No, they just don't feel well. And they don't add an extra dimension of emotional distress over it. They just don't feel well. So don't project into the animal the, the kind of emotional anxiety and distress that a human has. That, that's another layer of, of element to it. This has just become a common hand-me-down. The vet is, is not a philosopher. He's merely a technician. And in his vet training, he's, this is how you put an animal to, to sleep. Like, what? You don't, you're not putting them to sleep. You're killing them. This is how you kill an animal. And that's just the instructions they got in college. They know they don't question it, etc. So, But I question it. And you will find Sri Lankan vets... Don't do that. They don't like doing that. They don't do that. And it turns out that dogs die natural death. And they're not in emotional distress. They're in physical pain, perhaps. And that pain is oft, for the animal is often much less than it is for the human. I talked to several vets about this. Cats in particular can be riddled with cancer. And they don't seem to show it at all. Uh, Etc. So... This is, uh, the Buddhist approach is that don't euthanize your animals, don't put them to sleep. In other words, don't kill them. You're the, you'll, you'll, it's your karma if you do that. 
give them medi any medication you can to, to comfort them, etc. Let them die a natural death. And that's the burden. If you're going to have a pet, you're going to be saddled. Usually you're going to go, th their lives are shorter than yours. So you're going to go through, through at least five dogs. <laughs> and you better be prepared when you get the dog to see it through to the end. And it can be rather awkward and time consuming, but that's what you signed up for. So that's a little bit about this. I must give a whole talk about this one of these days. Our next question is from MPW from Calgary, Canada. When I see a house lizard catching a fly for its meal, do I save the life of the insect or deprive the lizard of its meal or turn away yet feel some inner discomfort not having done what I could? When I meditate, a flash of this comes up. How do I get rid of the f bad feeling? Yes, don't interfere with the nature. Allow nature to go on and you can reflect on the miserable nature of samsara because that is the way it goes and that's why we want out. It's, it, it is... It is one animal consuming another in horrible ways. And you should not also have any guilt or anything about that. You're, you should, this is, has always gone on. It will always go on until, we, until those beings are out of this dreadful samsara. Nature is red in tooth and claw. It's a horrifying. I have been living in the forest so long and I've seen, it, it's, it's ghastly what animals do to each other and, and also insects and animals and insects. Just a few years ago, I was on a, a, a retreat and I came walking back to my cootie and there was a big snake with a half swallowed frog in its mouth. And that frog is still alive, half swallowed. And it's gonna take a long time to get the rest of that frog swallowed. It's gonna it's gonna be swallowed slowly alive. And I went back to my kuti and meditated, and I wrote in the diary. That's why I won out of samsara. <laughs> and when I came back later that afternoon, the snake was still there with a large bulge in its halfway down its body. The snake, the, the, the frog, yes. <laughs> so, it's, the Buddha is, is a very different view of reality. This is not all the sweetness of God's creation or anything like that. We don't understand what anybody's talking about when they talk like that. The Buddha says, all can see the sickening sight. It's, it's a sickening sight of death, pain, injustice, and it's just relentless. And all we can do is try to make the best of it and not, inf not in inf increase it or anything like that. And, but we should not be disturbed about it. We know, we know what happens and we should try to reduce the amount of suffering by not uh, bringing it into our meditation or anything like that. We see it, and we let it motivate us to reduce the suffering and to get out. And we're no longer, again, we're no longer surprised. That's surprise meditation. In the morning when you get up, say, what is it that could surprise me? You know, what could I possibly 
hear about that could surprise me. Another pandemic? <laughs> There's no surprise. This is what happens. Yeah. Our next question is from Anonymous from Vancouver, Canada. Hello, Ajahn. I have heard that anger can continue to arise for enlightened beings, but that the enlightened beings simply do not pick the anger up. Is this true? And would this be the case for all enlightened beings? Or would anger cease to arise for some enlightened beings? Thank you. It's very well answered in the suttas, and uh, people, especially monks, should be fully aware of, of this. And sometimes I hear talk like this where, you know, I'm angry, but I'm detached from my anger, and this and that is just ridiculous. And this is a very bad expression of Dhamma, and you should check these suttas and make sure you don't say stupid things. <laughs> so, that quote is supposedly from Ajahn Chah, where somebody asked him if he got angry, and he said, I don't pick it up, etc. I don't know exactly what he said or whether the, the thing was properly communicated. But here's the, in brief... There are four stages of enlightenment. In the first stage, Sotapanna, you can experience anger. And it, when you're angry, you're not detached from your anger. You're angry. There is no such thing as detached from your anger. When you're angry, you're angry. How much is a matter of, you know, is it intense or not? So... The anger at that stage will not drive you over the lines into murder or anything like that, but that's all. The second stage of enlightenment, anger has been more diminished, but it's still possible to arise if, by direct provocation. It doesn't rise spontaneously by, uh, you know, mem old memories of being wounded and revenge and, you know, or, there's no... That doesn't go on at the second stage of enlightenment, but if somebody spits in your face and slaps you and calls you a few names, you might get a little angry. The third stage of enlightenment, there is no anger. It doesn't arise under provocation or by any other means. It's gone. And you're not detached from your anger. It's gone. There isn't any. And let alone in the fourth stage. So by the third stage, anagami, anger is simply absent it's not that you it's not that you're tr mindful and not not uh being careful not to be angry it's that you can't be angry it's not that you don't it's that you can't and so when these causes and condition which cause this thing we call enlightenment happen it's not reversible it's not conditional you're either at a stage where you have seen and, are, and the, that switch that uh, pulls over into anger has been pulled out. It just doesn't work anymore. It just, it's not there. The circuit's not there. So that's clarification about this. And this is, I don't know, incredible confusion in all kinds of mindfulness courses and all these Oh, just watch your, you know, watch your anger and just be, have your anger there and you're over here. No, you're not. You're angry. There is no distinction between you and the anger. That's all that there is there. There is anger there and there's not two of you, the anger over here. And if you're a psychiatrist, 
and your patient is angry and you're not, then yes, you're detached from their anger, but you're never detached from your own anger. <laughs> this is just a little bit of logic and also very strongly reinforced by the suttas. This is something I've come across again and again, and it's important that clarification is, is the, the light of checking this out with the suttas. It's an override. And the Buddha said, this is going to come up frequently in history where a whole bunch of people start agreeing on something, and it's in discord with the suttas. If that's the case, you, you choose the suttas over the, over the group that starts talking like this. And the reason why they talk like this is quite often because of modern, just modern psychological theories. Yeah. Our next question is from Marilyn F. in Canmore, Canada. When I started going to yoga retreats many years ago, we were sent home once with the question, Do you love yourself? Walking home, I wondered why on earth would you love yourself or want to love yourself? About a week later, I went on a hike and sitting on a high mountain pass, looking out onto such incredible beauty, those thoughts came up, and in that moment, I started crying uncontrollably. When the crying stopped, I was overcome with such peace and happiness and an incredible sense of freedom. Walking down the mountain, I thought, that must be how you feel when you love yourself. So feeling and knowing this over the years, on and off, I have hit a wall. The last year and a half, I have had to deal with a lot of pain and frustration. Those feelings seem to be nowhere now. How can I recapture those feelings and move past this stumbling block? Well, that's, it, you need it now more than you needed it when you were watching the beautiful nature. You were healthy and in nature. Uh, and, of course, it's a great idea to have loving-kindness when you're healthy and in nature, but it's even more important that you have it now that you have some illness, pain. And instead of asking ourselves, and this, is, this question could only arise, in, I suppose, in the Western culture, that why, why should one love oneself? What's that all about? The question should arise, how can anybody not love themselves? Why? It, it, this is the natural state, is that you... you uh, must and naturally love and take care of yourself you, as you should. <laughs> Why? How does anybody come up with the idea that you shouldn't? It's just crazy. You should love and can have concern for yourself because you're the one that has access to about 95% of you, which no other being has access to. And you only have access to about 5% of anybody else. You can't get into the inside of them. You can't control their emotions. You infer that they care about themselves just as you do. And if you don't care about yourself, then how can you infer that anybody else does? And then if nobody cares about themselves, why should we care about anybody? You know, what, if, what the... It's just madness. So... You are being encouraged and, and explained by the Buddha. It's very natural to can have goodwill for yourself and care about yourself. And that's the only reason why you would care about anybody else. Because you realize they also feel like this. They care about themselves. So, so it's 
love others as you love yourself. But if you don't love yourself, how are you going to love anybody else? Does everybody else love themselves and you don't? Is that, is that, why not? Feel free to care for yourself, to, to increase the quality of your life, to concern yourself with this and realize that you, you can do more for yourself than anybody else can. And they're, they're going to have to do more for themselves than you can as well. There's lots of stuff you can't do for others and they better, they better do it for themselves or nobody will. And that is the end of tea time. Well, it's not really even tea time. I suppose I should stop calling it tea time. It's, this is what we actually do live at the monastery and we actually have tea. <laughs> so we will leave it for today.